Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The White House will soon send Congress a legislative proposal to overhaul how agencies hire and manage their cyber workforce. The proposal attempts to tackle what officials think is one of the biggest barriers to cyber recruiting inside government, the patchwork of disparate workforce authorities across agencies. For the latest, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday joins me. Justin, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you, Eric? Oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. So tell us more about this proposal. Yeah, so this is intended to create a government-wide cyber hiring system, which would be a first because there's been several uh, agency-specific systems put in place over the years. The Defense Department's Cyber Accepted Service, the Department of Homeland Security's Cyber Talent Management System, to name two of the big ones. And this proposal from the Federal Cyber Workforce Working Group out of the White House is intended to really create a one-size-fits-all package inspired by some of the best bits of those other systems that those agencies have already put into place. Uh, you know, and it's it's also really intended to create a level playing field because those agencies like DOD and DHS can use their systems to pay cyber people a little bit more than other agencies can. And in the federal government, that makes a big difference when you're so far behind the private sector to begin with. Jason Bark is Deputy Associate Director for Strategic Workforce Planning at OPM. He spoke about this proposal at a Foundation for Defense of Democracies events last week. How do we create kind of this equity across the federal government for, you know, everybody kind of on this level playing field? So, you know, we're not really competing against each other. Maybe we're competing against private sector, but we're able to bring in that talent that we need. Interesting. So do all the agencies support this push from the White House? Yeah. So that's what officials uh, say and hope. Uh, You know, they they developed this proposal through an interagency working group that I mentioned that includes 34 agencies, actually, in addition to various White House offices, all taking a look at this issue and and coordinating on this proposal. So officials hope that that kind of consensus building, excuse me, on the front end could make it easier to support on Capitol Hill once this proposal goes over there. Mark Montgomery is senior director of the Foundation for Defensive Democracies Center on Cyber and Technology Innovation. He's also executive director of the Cyberspace Solarium Commission 2.0. The thing that kills a lot of White House legislation are federal agencies going behind their back to the congressional committees of concern and saying, don't do this. You have to get everybody on board because if you don't, you know, particularly, I would name names, but I mean, there are federal agencies that are very effective in using their committees of jurisdiction to kill legislation. Sure. All right. And so what are some of the agency specific hiring cyber hiring systems that exist today? Uh, which ones stand out as the, among the best? Yeah, I, I mentioned at the top DHS's cyber talent management system. That's one of the newest ones, really. It is exempt from many of the federal government's traditional competitive hiring, classification, and compensation practices. Hires under the, under the system can make a salary as high as the vice president's in some cases. That's pretty notable. Uh, similarly, DOD can offer higher pay to cyber personnel under its cyber accepted service system. And the Pentagon wants to expand that system uh, from its current crop of about 15,000 people to cover as many as 75,000. So the Pentagon with, you know, its 
big budget and weight there is expanding its specialized system. Then the Department of Veterans Affairs, another big agency, began leveraging authorities under the PACT Act earlier this year to offer big pay raises to IT and cyber employees. And finally, you know, the National Security Agency, another cyber heavyweight, can offer higher pay to cyber and technology specialists with some special uh, pay authority that they have. So you've got these big agencies that have special hiring authorities and then dozens of others who who don't have anything at this point, really. Uh, C.U. Mo, Assistant National Cyber Director for Workforce Education and, Stra- and Awareness, spoke about that issue at the foundation event last week. Some of the stuff that I don't think private sector companies face is the fact that we have all sorts of different authorities and flexibilities. They're either created through guidances, rulemaking, or by law. So I think just navigating that in an environment in which technology changes faster than we can train people, in which the skills are constantly changing, I think that's a unique challenge that that our federal workforce face in trying to recruit people. And CU Mo, Assistant National Cyber Director for Workforce Education and Awareness. We're speaking with Federal News Network's reporter, Justin Doubleday. All right, so proposing legislation is only half the battle. What's the outlook for this legislation? Could it actually get passed? Yeah, well, you definitely see significant support in Congress generally to expand the federal cyber workforce, to expand cyber hiring really across the board. But this proposal still hasn't gone over to Congress as far as we know. It's in that kind of final stages at this point. So it still needs to get over there. And then it needs to, of course, get a lawmaker, a group of lawmakers to begin championing it and then bringing it forward to passage. Assuming that happens at some point, there's a long implementation timeline, typically with new personnel systems like this. So officials at the the foundation event really stressed that, you know, this is a big deal. This is a big proposal, but it's not going to happen uh, and be implemented overnight. It's it's going to take some time here to really get this off the ground. All right. So in the meantime, what are agencies trying to do to fill all those vacant cyber positions that they have? Yeah. One thing they're doing is trying to train federal HR managers on some authorities that they do have that could help with cybersecurity recruiting, things like local market supplemental pay. Uh, There's, you know, technology fellowships and different things agencies can take advantage of to fill certain positions and needs. Agencies are also looking at ways to bring technical talent into government more quickly through the tech to gov initiative, which is a relatively new uh, initiative out of the federal government that aims to pull folks from the private sector uh, to find their first job in government. You know, there is this wave of layoffs in the technology sector over the past year or so. So agencies are definitely looking to see if they can attract some of those folks into the uh, into the government space. And just using things like uh, pooled hiring and and shared certificates can help make it easier for agencies to hire uh, for specific cyber occupations and tech technical applications and things like that. All right. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday, thank you for the insight. And we'll be touching back with you as soon as we see more about that legislation happening. Absolutely. Thank you, Eric. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. 
As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people and in order to do that we really value our people we want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them so well-being is important psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard so I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of 
our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it? And building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I wanna hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so... That was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people 
on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career. 
and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.